Welcome to The Shaping Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mitchell Bernstein, and this is our very first episode. So thank you so much for tuning in. We cover so much today, including our secret portfolio framework, how AI is further inching into our day jobs, how you can stand out as a designer, why Pascal and I are creating a new company, and so much more. Thanks again for listening. And with that said, let's get into it. I have like a list of things that we can go into. I already started recording. You know, we can always like cut it out, whatever. <laughs> but maybe we start off by, I don't know, having like a little intro like, hey, like, who are we? And, and what are we going to talk about in the future? Like, what, what's the point of this thing? What are we doing? Or, yep. you know, so if you want to go take it away. <laughs> you want to do what I do? Yeah, I mean, like, what, 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 I guess, what led up to this point of us creating this podcast? And where do we go from here? Who are we? You know, what's going on? I move pixels, man. That's what I do. Yeah, I, do I mean, that's the, all we do. <laughs> but honestly, it's like, I think for me personally is, you know, we always have ideas, always had, you know, conversations on design subjects and topics. And I hear a lot, you know, during one-on-ones with people that I've either mentored or mentee or, you know, that I've had the chance to talk to that they, you know, I sometimes bring in different perspectives to things, which is in like, and I help them grow and things like that. And I thought, what would be a better way to help share anything that we have? Because like when I joined the design field, and I tried to do anything. I had to unfortunately learn everything by myself. The communities weren't as big. I couldn't find a mentor for the love of me or the mentors didn't work good. So yeah, we didn't learn anything. And I'm trying to pay back. I'm trying to make it not suck for anybody coming in. So I'm making myself as much available as much as I can. And I transmit like whatever I learned from my mentors, I try to transmit down so that, you know, it. Basically, I try to pay it for it as much as I can. That's like my type of personality in life. So that's hopefully it's what we can do with this podcast. It, yeah. it can also a way for us to grow because it'll force us to change and think differently and challenge us. And I know we're not always going to be agreeing to everything. So I think it's just going to be a matter of, okay, prove me wrong and things like that. And at the end of the day, it's to have fun. Like, I mean, that's, that's my goal. Yeah, and I'm probably going to just disagree for the sake of disagreeing and seeing how how we can spar. <laughs> wow, good. Hopefully. <laughs> well, I think that the problem is you and I are in such of the same mindset. Like we think so similarly about details, about caring, about the right parts of the process that matter. That, you know, how can we have the highest impact and prioritize what matters most and move away from this dribbleization of our work, you know, which I hate, I hate using that word because honestly, I don't want to give any more credit to dribble about that because it's not dribble's fault. You know, there's a lot of other yeah. things out there that kind of made it this, this way in the industry. Yep. I think one thing that we need to do with this podcast is we need to figure out how can we communicate to others so that they can communicate the value of design because I don't think designers know the value that we bring, I think we 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 had like a, that, like that whining session that we didn't have a seat at the table, and all we had to do was sit down and start talking, and we just whined and complained that no one invited us to the table, but no one was preventing us from sitting at the table. They were just like, "Well, you're not telling us what you're going to do and how you're going to impact us and communicate on our level, so we're just not going to talk to you." Mm -hmm. And Time and time again, after comp after company after company, we we both go to, you know, there are issues with design, but they're always slightly different. They have some of the same things, just business to business. But design wise, you know, IBM was at its peak, right? When we were there, I would mm -hmm. say definitely at its peak when we were there. Not because of us, but because of everyone else with us. It it had such a great sense of okay, now designers. You know, let's listen to what you had to say. What What are you thinking? Because that was kind of like the first instinct people had. You know, it's kind of like, okay, you know, you know, we can we can write, create a roadmap, but like, if there's no if there's no input from the other teams, especially design. Oh, there goes my computer. Can you hear me? Yep. 
I can hear it. My Cal digit wire, I think, is a little loose. So if I go in and out, probably because of that. No, no, it's okay. Uh, I got to go get a new one. But, yeah. but I think, like, to, to stick to what you were saying, just to, to riff off of that, I think one thing, in all honesty, design has always, in a way, been there. I think it's never been able to articulate the business side of design. And I think that's what the new uh. era brought in, where we are starting to merge business and design and, you know, design thinking and all these other activities and courses. But I think that was always been an issue is we used to take design from the pixel aspect of it or, or sure craft and not understand what is the impact or outcome of that pixel work or of that thing. And I think that's what designers have been able to articulate over time is that impact. And we've partnered with, you know, PMs and developers, and we've been able to create that liaison that didn't used to happen before. It's like, I remember back in the day, it was like developer world was like, oh, we didn't talk to them. We just send shit, shit over to them. Mm -hmm. That's it. Like, mm -hmm. We don't talk to them. We don't understand because they don't understand what we do. But in reality, they totally understand what we do. It's just, they articulate it in a different way. They're mm -hmm. like, they're as creative as we are with code and lines because they end up creating what we are going to provide. So I think it's, it's always been a matter of misunderstanding the other party I find, but yeah. I think that we should do a really in-depth report about this because I actually disagree with that. I don't think in the very beginning it was like that because I think the designers came from business in the beginning. There was no designated role for design. There was art. You hire an art or creative person that would make a beautiful mural on your business or that would create great posters and, and, and advertisements. You know, like the Mad Men kind of, kind of mm -hmm. oh, what is it, what it's called, whatever. Yeah. It's beautiful artwork and whatever. And, and they yep. did a fantastic, one of my favorite shows of all time. But, you know, I think actually, I think you're, you're right at, 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 as like, what's the current problem? But I think it stemmed from design becoming more distinct and try and create a, an essence of itself. So we have business. We have things that need to be built. Right. So people who had hardware experience, there was not really software experience until past 30, 40 years. Right. And then there was hardware marketing business. Mm -hmm. Then you have people that were like creative. Right. Because that, that can be anyone that would make decision. They would have decision making power to say no and no and no mm -hmm. to things that were bad ideas that didn't meet their standards. Those, in my opinion, were designers disguised as business people because all they had to do, all they could do was business and channel their design urges through the business to get to the product. Now that we've developed a product-specific role, someone who actually sits on the product and actually helps design it to, to think about the person actually experiencing instead of coming from top down, it's actually coming from research and interactions with users and then being built from the bottom up as well. I think that now it's in the problem that you were describing, right? We're too busy in the pixels. We're not trying to figure out what the user really needs and addressing those things. Because there's tons of businesses that don't have good looking websites, they don't have good looking things, but their experience is great, right? They don't have taste and visual style, but their experience works, you know? And, and even though they rely on nasty code, it works really well and doesn't break. And maybe it breaks here and there, but like, you know, it's functioning, functioning is running. And most importantly, it's growing. So, you know, like what Cody Sanchez, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Uh, Sanchez says, uh, Sanchez. you know, she builds a lot of businesses off of the brick, uh, brick and mortar. And, and, and I'm not sure that any of those businesses have great looking websites. And, you know, I don't think her website's great looking, but it, it has a great conversion. Right. And I think, but it does, that, it does what it's supposed to do. Like exactly. it is exactly what this it, supposed it's to be. more than the pixels. Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's really thinking about the audience. And that's something we taught in our cohort class recently. So I'm trying to maybe switch gears a little bit. Uh, before we dive into maybe something along those lines, I want to talk about the cohort class and I want to see what topics you had that you lined up because I don't see them in Notion, man. I don't see them in our Notion document. And I think I'm that's busy working on something you. else. <laughs> that's the thing. It's like, I can't be everywhere at the same time. <laughs> no, I'm, I in all honesty, I think the cohort, like I've, like wait, 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 wait. <laughs> before we get dive into, I, I want to go dive into it, but I want to kind of 
make it more clear, like, what are we doing with this podcast? Because I think from your perspective, definitely you said, argue. Definitely going to argue. We're definitely going to argue. <laughs> I mean, it has to be in it. Yeah. I mean, if there's no argument, why is anyone going to listen? We're just not going to... No, I don't want to regurgitate an essay, you know? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that this intellectual design sparring is much needed in this. Like, we have, like, you know, like, the all-in podcast. I don't know if you know what that is. Super businessy, right? Mm-hmm. And you have, you know, other podcasts that you sent me, which I don't know the names off the top of my head because there's so many. But, you know, there's so many, like, things in other industries that they, they, you know, go back and forth on. And a lot of times in the design space, I see that and you see it. They're just like, oh, wow, look how beautiful this is. Great. Awesome job. Good job, kiddo. And they don't really like dive deep enough into what we want to know about besides, you know, kissing ass. Like, <laughs> I don't yeah. think that we should do that on this, on this no. podcast. I don't want to, you know, just brown nose other designers or, you know, make them feel special because, I want a job from them or I want, you know, more recognition from them. You know, we should call out things as is and help people actually get better and not like to criticize those that exist, but to help those who are new and those who are evolving to learn. Right. Yeah. So I think that's a big part of this podcast that we can contribute to the, to the industry. And, and in addition, like you said, to grow, I think that we're definitely going to grow a lot, but we're also going to grow this podcast into like we have a newsletter coming. We have all those courses coming. The whole point is to help supplement and give a lot of free information away to people who are seeking it, who are hungry to learn, to grow as designers and as you know, contributors to a business and help experiences get better throughout every aspect of life. This isn't just you know startup world, right? We're doing this for also, and I would say probably a, a bigger portion is the enterprise folks because they're solving really complex problems that actually matter, right? Like managing, you know, your predictive analytics and understanding what, where your, your company's projections are going to be important. Understanding, you know, how the, the transportation network can, can be maintained so that the planes don't arrive at the wrong times, important, right? These are functional underlying systems of our society that people actually hold together with duct tape and strings, I mean, our society is very fragile. And if we can design it better, we can help reimagine it in a better way that can be scalable, that can be more sustainable, that can be, you know, more, more friendly to use, whatever, interact yep. with, whatever. I think that's a really big portion of what we want to help educate others on doing with this podcast. And, you know, from, from your and my background, you know, we have plenty of years of experience designing really complex things, working with Awful, awful, awful situations that we were given, like, you know, maybe, maybe it was just like bad developers or, or bad designers, but also we've both been blessed with the opportunity to work with amazing people as well. Mm-hmm. And from those experiences of collaboration, of failure, of success, I think that we can share a lot of the knowledge that we have. So that's kind of what I wanted to box this kind of beginning of this episode in, just kind of going over that. And I'm not sure how we're going to really cut this up. We don't really know yet. We're just going to explore and really see what people think about it. And we love feedback. So anyone listening, please send us feedback of what you like and don't like. Maybe there's something wrong with the mics. Maybe there's something wrong with the topic. Maybe that we, you found something offensive or maybe you found something really insightful you want more of. Please let us know. We're you know, not trying to offend anyone, but we are trying to make this enjoyable to listen to, interesting to listen to, and, and hopefully you actually learn something from it and as as well as we hopefully us learning as well whatever so yep. yeah so let's talk about the course real quick How, dude we freaking taught a course <laughs> yeah it was just which i found was different than how we used to do or like how, how i've been used to doing it either from you know going back to university and teaching a class or something or even you know, at work, doing conferences and things like that. I think my original intent when I did it, I did it the exact same way I used to, which was more of like a lecturer approach. And through the course and conversations with the, you know, the first cohort that we did, we got amazing feedback on the sense that we need to include them. This needs to be a two-way conversation all the way. I mean, and I, I think that's the thing that, you know, like, like we all do, you you launch, you learn, you adapt, like the universal infinite loop. But I had a blast doing it. I learned a lot doing it too, which was mm-hmm. different from, like I said, 
doing, you know, speaking at a conference or something, which is you get the feedback at the end, but it's not the same. It's not the same vibe. Like this was all, like up close and personal. And we got to see their work. We got to critique their work. We got great conversations during class classes. And yeah, I mean, I can't wait, honestly, to create more and finish all the other pieces of content we got on, on the go to be able to share with everybody else and, you know, bring the knowledge up and, and share. So, so speaking of that, do you want to describe what we taught and like why we taught it? Yeah, I think like we obviously have a lot of stuff that we want to talk about, right? We have mm -hmm. a lot of design background. We've educated a lot. We've created a lot of stuff in the past, either for work or for blogs or for anything that, you know, we want to educate with. Knowing and seeing that the job market is getting hit this year and, you know, reviewing a lot of portfolios of work and doing interviews, I was kind of getting tired, man, of the same cookie cutter template portfolio. And I'm like, we got to spice this up. I mean, it's, and the thing that, you know, it's not negative in a way that it's, I feel like a lot of the junior designers coming up, it's not their fault. They're being told in school. It's like, make sure you got this X, Y, Z process. You got this. Yep. Your portfolio is good, but it's, it was missing a lot of the things and reviewing a lot of the portfolios for work. I always felt that they were missing a lot of stuff. They were like the personalities didn't shine. Elements weren't right. And I felt it like I wanted to create something to help them elevate the craft of their portfolio to be able to articulate, you know, what they want, what they want to do. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to utilize my own perspective of me building my DP portfolio because that was... Can you describe what DP means? Yeah. Des sorry. Design principle. And... and it's a pain, man, honestly. Like going through that process at IBM is super hard. I, like I was expecting, no, you get a promotion and you get bumped up and that's it. You like it's, you got to put like a hundred page portfolio of like your work demonstrating how much leadership you were able to acquire and push and initiatives you had to do. Speaking about yourself, like you're not used to speaking and things like that. And it was really painful. I literally took like six months to put together with the feedback and things like that. And then I wanted to help if I could get what I've learned and share that knowledge back with others. I felt it was okay. It's going to be a way for them to be able to leverage their portfolios and spice them up. And all that came about. And I think that's where you and I had that conversation about that portfolio course specifically. And I know you had done your portfolio as well. You had, you know, updated yours, which was still fresh in your head. So it was a great opportunity to create, you know, something and in, in, in that knowledge on what it takes, depending uh, on which company you go to and how can you structure it to really show impact and outcomes. And yeah, I mean, that's all that, you know, all the ideas that came about and why we did it. And Hopefully, the people that I've gone through it thus far are seeing the process and the outcome and the advantages of it. I mean, we've had great feedback so far from the folks that, you know, yeah. decided to provide that feedback. But I want to keep doing it. I want to help more people out. I want to help yeah. like, people build awesome portfolios that talk about them, not a cookie cutter template, like a recipe they follow. Yeah. So so I guess I guess to recap kind of what we taught, we, we taught... A course on how to design a winning portfolio for designers for yeah. for ux designers for visual designers for mm -hmm. for ux researchers and there were some senior folks that were sprinkled in there and most of them were kind of newer out of school or, or transitioning from career yeah. from whatever it was mental health or like a therapist or like from i think it was like an engineering one to design that's kind of what we taught and i think you're right i think the first time we did it which I think we, we did it right, you know? So we use this platform called Maven, for those who aren't familiar. Love Maven. Shout out to the Maven team. They helped us with, you know, this wonderful course that we taught, but this wonderful platform that they created, it allows you to do all these things for free. They take mm -hmm. a 10% cut of whatever the payment is. You ask people to pay you for the course, 
And then that's how the, the deal's kind of done. They give you all these tools, like free, like marketing, email, newsletter tool, a C CRM for all your, your, your students. So, you know, their emails, whatever. And then you can kind of like message them individually or see like responses from the survey that they fill out when they submit, uh, they apply. If you ask them to apply for the course, there's other things like a community where you can have talk to them and have like your own little mini Slack or discord group workspace in Maven for your course or just for like the cohort. There's a bunch of other tools in there too. And we use that to start teaching a course about designing a portfolio, a winning portfolio, something that's going to get recruiters heads spinning to your work to, to get you to, to, to get them to look at your stuff and hopefully reach out more to help level up designers and showcase who they really are, get proper portfolios up and running and helping them tell their story, right? Those are the kind of the outcomes that we wanted out, out of the course. Going through the feedback, yes, I think that your articulation of it was correct. It was a much more lecture heavy than it was interaction heavy. And that's something that we're, we're reworking right now. I have, you know, I have to go back and after this, finish up some some more of the, the slides I've started putting together in Figma, which is what we use to collaborate on this, which I think was a great idea. Another great idea of Pascal. Third great idea will be using Substack, so you're on a roll. But we we created this course. We taught the first cohort. We're getting ready for the next cohort, and we're re-envisioning part of the course, pulling the content around, moving it around, simplifying it, simplifying the framework that we gave to these students to make it easier to remember and apply, and also mm -hmm. making it more actionable of a course. So we're actually going to be not hand-holding, hand-holding, but we're going to really work with them per each day of the course to actually teach them a little bit more. Like, all right, now how do you write a really great hook into your case study? How do you write a really great case study? Okay, now how do, how do you put all these case studies together? How do you write a really good introduction to who you are or a snippet or, or, or an elevator pitch of what you do? Mm -hmm. We need to be able to teach these actionable things that they can put into their portfolio. Because honestly, I think the original approach was let's come at it from you know, what can we do to improve the, the actual website? But I think it's a much deeper issue. And I think you both, you and I both realize that it's more than just the visual, like, okay, improve your typography. Cause you know, the typography of the site, the choice, the font choice, you know, comic stands, whatever you choose could suck, but you can still have a great portfolio if you make it work. Like I think there was a professor I had in, in college who I absolutely despise. And he was just such a, like, I actually watched paint dry in his class. This was literally three or four weeks of the class was watching paint dry and changing of the color. I am not even joking. Ridiculous waste of my money. He goes into this thing where he's like, there's no such thing as a bad color. And I learned a lot from him. I, I will admit, but it was through the failures of him teaching that <laughs> I learned more. But one thing he did say stuck, stuck with me is that, that you can actually make really great color combinations and palettes through really bad colors. And he showed us that you just mix whatever colors you want and put them on the, on the paper and you actually can start making really bad color schemes that turn out to be cohesively really good. I don't think that we're going to be teaching these students of ours visual design from that basic level. And I'm sure we can get some things in there, like, you know, let's improve some typography skills, let's improve some visual layout, grid, whatever, and, and some navigation, maybe some basic, basic, basic things. But I think the content is way more important because I don't think we can teach them how to become visual designers in like a week or two. And I thought we could, honestly, I, th I thought my assumption was, okay, yeah, we can just teach them a couple of things and we'll learn it. But then it, it's actually practice that they would need for that kind of stuff. So they don't get that very often. And there's practice for everything, but we can at least give them the structure of how to write something correctly mm -hmm. and structure it in, in a manner that makes sense together. So mm -hmm. I think that was, that, that's where we're going to take the course. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Well said. So, yeah. So yeah, so that's, that's the course and, and we look forward to teaching that and hopefully those listening will be interested who haven't taken it already to sign up yeah. and, and we, we, you can go to, what is it? Let me pull up the URL so that no one has like any confusion, but I think it's maven.com slash learn primitives slash design a winning, a winning portfolio. portfolio, something like that. I don't know if there's dashes in there, but I'm going to look that up for everyone and put that in the course, the course, the show notes. So that way everyone can just click it or they yep. can kind of find it. So yeah, yeah, maven.com slash learn primitives slash design dash a dash winning dash portfolio. Okay.
Next, we are, Jack. let's see, how long are we in? Does it, it doesn't even tell you how it is. Yeah, so we're using Zoom to record this. I think we're going to switch to another platform specifically dedicated to, because I don't know if the audio is that great through Zoom. I know the, I just turned on the, like, the original audio for my end. So I don't know if you can do that from your end too, but I don't know. the compression might suck. So I apologize for everyone listening. We're going to find a platform that makes it easier for us to record and then get better audio quality. So just a heads up there. You want to talk about a topic that you have listed, not in the notion, or do you want me to start talking about topic? No, you you pick a topic, man. Mm. It's like surprise okay. me. That's, surprise that's you? Yeah, that's the topic of the day. Okay, this is, I I will tell you one that I didn't write down yet, but I saw I thought about it today because I sent it to you about an hour before the podcast. Substack. I yeah. think we should talk about the the design strategy of Substack in a sense and how they're actually designing their platform to cater away from algorithms and more towards writers and podcasters and video recorders, whatever. They really are doing a fantastic job. So shout out mm -hmm. to our, our, yep. our non-sponsor, uh, Substack, uh, best place to write, podcast, whatever. Please give us some free stuff. We need <laughs> that free t-shirt. Yeah. yeah, give us some free sh sh shirts or something like some, some gear or whatever. They are, they, I didn't even know they had dark mode, but besides that, they have a new feature out that lets us create threads and chat with our audience so that they can like, we can have like AMA. It's kind of like a Reddit thread, but just on your Substack. That's amazing. That's so good. I think like all in all, I think they, hey, just wanted to take a break to let you know about something Pascal and I are working on. We're hosting a free live cohort course on how to design a winning portfolio for creatives and user-centric practitioners. That could be you, maybe you, someone you know. Sign up on Maven by clicking the link in the description. And now, back to the pod. I think they've done a really good job with everything they've done. I mean, even yeah. if you look at like design, like the site, they, they have their own flavor to like their illustrations and the site. And I think it's... For anybody starting out and, you know, even blogging, if you just want to blog, I've always been writing my blogs on Medium, mm -hmm. you know, through UX collectives and all. So I've always been doing that. Time to change. But I think the what? Time to change. I know times are changing and it. Now it feels like Substack is, is slowly becoming like the place to go. And, and not only that is it's easy to, to do. Mm -hmm. It's easy to format your blogs. I mean, they've done a really good job. Mm -hmm at it you could you know you have that paywall or not the paywall like you decide what you want to do with your blog post but i also like the fact that you have all these different categories that are thrown at you at the same time and like not just the blog but i feel it's like they do everything else really well right you, they help grow your audience you know they, there's podcast videos there's a community i feel i know there's a community with medium but I feel like Substack just came in and upped the game. Like with everything <laughs> else they've done, it's, it literally is. It's like, because. Okay, well, okay, so let's, let's pause there. What is the best of both Medium and Substack? And, and why do you think people are leaving Medium to go to Substack? Because that seems to be the trend. Oof, that's a tough question. I have a, a, like a, an assumption, but. I've. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll say mine, then okay, you can go. react to it. So, Medium started making money. Right. And how they made money was they, they started asking people, hey, you can make your publication paid. Yeah. Right. And then if you make it paid, what happens is it puts it behind this paywall that yeah. someone can subscribe to all of Medium and then that author gets a cut of it. Kind of like what Spotify does or what other you know yeah. music streaming services do and other other kind of group contributions. So it's a centralized model. And what's good about that is it's one thing that a user has to pay for. And it benefits them because they can pay for one thing for a cheap price and they get a whole yep. library of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then they get kind of exclusive features and stuff that maybe only paid members get. And it's kind of like I think how Twitter is going to be going towards a little bit. But they also have a little bit of like you can pay for like special follows right now on Twitter. I don't know. I don't know if Elon's going to keep that. Elon, make Twitter better. Let's go. So, yeah, I think that was a big problem, though, because they made Medium a giant paywall for publications that at that point, I guess were free to trying to grab people to come in, kind of like the network effect, but it backfired and it backfired because there's not much control, I think maybe on like paid 
po paid posts, or paid newsletters or whatever it is on Medium from not paid, so free and paid. And it's on Medium to control that. So maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't, I don't know fully about that, but I'm just like riffing on it. Mm -hmm. Substack is great because they branded themselves as like, we're not going to censor you, which that was very good timing with the whole censorship from Twitter and Facebook and whatever, you know, after all, all this health stuff and all their crap that they were, you know, taking down, putting back up, putting back up, taking down, whatever. They had this reaction where it's like, okay, no, you can go to Substack and we're not going to take any crap because it doesn't matter if you say something that might be not true. Hopefully it is true and you should do your best job to, to be true. Those people get the most subscribers because they're being honest with their audience. They're not lying to their audience. And if they don't do something right, they should go back and, and, re and revisit those thoughts. A lot of those are opinion pieces. So it's, it's not really based around facts. Maybe it's, it's more like interpretation of the facts for a lot of people, you know, yeah. like famous writers and, and columnists, whatever that I don't like are on Substack, but they have every right that we have because they do, you know, their thing and they have their audience. And I, and I hope them, they hope they both, I hope both sides get, you know, only success, wealth, happiness, whatever, because I think everyone deserves that. I think not deserves that, but I think everyone can earn, can earn that. They deserve yeah. the right to earn that. But Medium doesn't really, I guess, celebrate that. And then Substack started giving more control to authors. Yeah. And they started building all these tools for authors. And Medium does not build all these tools for authors. So, and I think this, that's where the line has started to kind of deviate yeah. from. Where, I mean, I owe a lot to Medium. Mm -hmm. Honestly, like I owe a lot. And to Fabricio from like US Collective, because one of the publications way, way, way back that I did, he brought me on to be a writer within Collective, UX Collective. And that has helped my career tremendously. Like, honestly, I've had a lot of people reach in. I've had, you know, conference opportunities through that. I've had conversations through that. I have job opportunities or like people reach out to me. It's like, I mean, I owe a lot to Medium, honestly. I just think to what you're saying, I feel unfortunately, the writers don't have as much control as what we seem to be starting to see from Substack. And Substack also up the game with like the blog and the, the podcast. Like they're adding add-ons, mm -hmm. which feels like they're going to turn into this one-stop shop. Yeah. Like we'll see in time. Like we're going to, we're definitely decided like we're going all in on Substack. We're definitely yeah. going to give this a big push for us. We'll see where that goes. Mm -hmm. But I have a sense that they're going to win in the end because they, they're putting a lot of effort into this. And well, well, we'll see. I mean, at the end of the day, right? We'll <laughs> see. I'm not saying they're going to win, but I yeah. mean, there, it seems like the weight has shifted towards them. A lot of people have slowly left the ship of medium and I don't, I owe nothing but success to medium. It's not like me being yeah. negative about medium. It's more me about weighing and the pros and cons for people, especially for people starting in who want to own outright their content. They want to have a platform to blog to do podcasts, it's like one thing to help them do everything. This is going to be easy for a lot of people. You know, I just realized looking at myself in the camera while you're talking, we should get like branded mugs with like the name of the podcast on it. <laughs> should <laughs> I, I don't right now want actually to has my name on it? It actually has Mitchell. I know. Yeah. I don't want to turn into this NASCAR guy though. It's like sponsored by. I think we'll have like a hat from Substack. We'll have like. Like like a pot like a the advertisement on the cups every time we we'll switch it out. <laughs> it's like, it's like oh here's my simplest cup I gotta drink out of it. Shout out to our non-sponsor Simplest. Well, they are no, they are offering us a discount for everybody at Desert Courses. Yes, that's true. So oh. thank you, the Simplest, but they're not, they're not sponsoring us yet. Yet, no, no, um, but still, it's yeah, still a discount. A discount. Discount to discount, and as long as it helps people create portfolios that are amazing to help them get better jobs and more pay. I'm all uh -huh. for it. But yeah, I think that what's interesting is like if I, I'm sure Medium is working on a podcast thing. I'm sure about it. Like they're not stupid people. They're really smart yeah. people over at Medium. I tried to create a, a podcasting startup. I almost got funding for it too. I almost got $1.5 million for it, believe it or not. Wow. And, I, and it, it caved right, right like the day before 
we both start like getting paperwork together and stuff. I was like, no, it was gonna be an AI powered podcasting startup where you can kind of just like write your podcast, record like five minutes of your own audio of your own voice. And then forever you can just have, you know, written words of you speaking instead of you actually recording the whole thing. So you can just write it and have someone else write it for you, but with your voice. Mm-hmm. So now we have the technology to actually do that because it was like only a couple of years ago that I was trying to pitch it and there were people that are willing to do it, but whatever. But podcasting, I looked into the research on this, podcasting is exploding. It's probably slowed down a little bit because people aren't really just sitting at home anymore from the pandemic. But, you know, it, it's a huge industry because you can listen. Like audiobooks and podcasting, yep. you can listen it's like I think two hundred thousand books a year or something like that that are audiobooks and growing. I think mm-hmm. last year was like one hundred and fifty or something like that. It's great, hard to do. It's hard to pull off an audiobook because you have to actually record for so long, edit whatever. So this thing I was work on was actually going to simplify a lot of that. But point is, I wouldn't be surprised if more and more writing, blogging sites turn into competitors to Substack through podcasting as well, just because it's becoming you know one to one, right? You have a blog, but you also need a newsletter, but you also need a podcast if you want to have that network mm-hmm. effect of drawing people mm-hmm. in to listen and read to your stuff. So if Medium pulls off podcasting, I'm sure they're going to have, they're, they're going to be like, I think Medium will be the centralized model. And then Substack will be the decentralized model. And it'll be really interesting to see who's going to win that. Because Medium has a great name, mm-hmm. but Substack has, I think, a more customer-centric brand like they care they, they seem to care more about the customer yeah and some big names mm-hmm. used Substack mm-hmm. to get started like i mean the only yeah, reason us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay uh i mean i'm a humble canadian so i won't say that <laughs> but I mean, oh shut up shut up that's how i stumbled across it it's because i you know following other big names in the, and not in the design industry but like business opportunity people mm-hmm. and things like that who use that, who used Substack in the past to get their things done. And that's how I stumbled across it. So I'm lucky I found that hole and went, kept reading in and yeah. stumbled across it. So we'll see where that could lead. Yeah. But it's definitely leading us towards something cool. I know that. Heck yeah. Okay, cool. So do you want me to write, write off another topic or read off another topic or do you want give another topic? No, you're on roll, man. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay, let's go. Let's freaking go, man. Also, I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about this publicly. Do we want this podcast to be explicit or not explicit? Or per episode, we'll just decide based on whoever curses. It's explicit now. <laughs> like, I don't, um, I don't swear I, a lot, so I don't know. I mean, I swear way more than I should. I'm, I'm being, you know, a little bit more reserved now. But okay, <clears throat> so hard talked about Maven, talked about Substack, this whole Figma thing. Oh, damn yeah. it! You were going there. Yeah, I, I want to talk about this because I think this is really important. Does it matter if Figma gets bought by Adobe? Because there are so many tools now that are surpassing drawing tools. Figma is a traditionally a drawing tool. Like, right, you, you can draw a vector. Yeah. You can create mm-hmm. a rectangle, a sh- like a circle. These are all drawing tools, like sketch drawing tool, Photoshop drawing tool for design, right? You know, you can add bitmaps and whatever, but vector-based tools are typically for drawing. So they come with this nature of designers draw. Adobe's buying the only tool in, in, in the world that can do what it can do the way that it can do it. So by that, I mean, they built this robust way of developing Figma from a backend perspective. They code it. I don't know if it's C or C++. I don't remember what it was. But it's it's not in a web-based language. And they recompile it into a web-based language where it is super smooth. I don't know if they still do this, but this is this is how I, w- yeah. I was, I, uh, you know, we, we researched it. And that is why... Adobe is buying them because they have this backend that's insane. It's insanely powerful. It's better than anything that anything Adobe has in their backend. But it's also, it also, it's exactly on point to the old saying is if you can't beat them, beat them, buy them. But here's the problem. There's no one that can compete at that level and no one has the same capabilities 
as Figma. They might be like, oh yeah, well, Sketch can be, you know, but Sketch isn't as big. As a matter of fact, they just laid off people. And I love But they Sketch. started off. I mean, at the end of the day, Sketch was like, bar none, the best when that came out. Well, well Sketch and then was Fig the anti-Adobe. I know, but Figma came out and they upped the game. I mean, it's always about who's going to up the game. And it, and people are all like Figma gurus and all at the end of the day. <laughs> but there's a new product that's going to come in, which yeah. is going to be better. Well, that's it's why I don't think that, that way. We, should, we, we should not be teaching a Figma or like a tool-based course for a while at least because they just change so fast. And it's like, what you know, we can we can get the quick money and like teach someone how do you create a rectangle in Figma and make it align to this other rectangle. But, you know, I'm I, still learning that YouTube video, by the way. Honestly, I think <laughs> Figma's pretty confusing, to, to be honest. But I, I, I think that after crying for weeks and weeks and weeks while transitioning from Sketch to Figma at IBM, I think that I was able to pick up some of the ropes of how to actually use it properly. And um, and and it, you talked like when we talked earlier, you said we had design as a seat at the table. Yeah. This is a perfect example. I know people bitched all over Twitter and like, <laughs> oh, it's the end of the world. Like, yeah. I, my, whatever. At at the end of the day, this is a perfect example of the, how design adds value to a company. Yeah, people didn't buy. A prop like they bought design mm -hmm. at the end, and it just like that's that's it. They bought design because this is a designer tool created by designers for designers. So they bought design. It just it just proves there's a lot of design words on that thing, but it it, it just <laughs> uh, proves yeah. the value of design. At the end of the day, that's what it is. There's a new product that like let's not get emotionally tied to this. There's a new product that's come in that's going to come in like, and for sure there is. Right, it's always been that way. I know people get emotionally attached to it because they, and they're afraid of whatever. But I have to say that when I started out in the print industry back then, we had a, another software we used, and when Adobe came in, they changed the game. So we have also to remember when Adobe came, they originally are part of the game changers. So, yeah. They're, they're they're the original OGs. Like they're they, the OGs. They literally it was you know, Steve Jobs like don't do printers anymore. Do this software thing. Like yes. just focus on that. And that that you know they 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 did a great job over the years. I gotta say like they they so we gotta we gotta teams. give them props yeah. though, right? I mean, okay, look, we wouldn't be doing logos if it would be for Illustrator. I don't know about you, but I don't use Corel Draw, so to me it's like <laughs> Illustrator. I use like, Microsoft Paint. <laughs> Photoshop, right? We wouldn't be doing that. After Effects. I mean, there's a lot of things that are possible. Sure, product design is Figma. But I don't. Des I still don't design logos in Figma. I still use Illustrator. Like for um, me, that's I think, me. That's, I think it's changing. I know, but me, that's, that's me. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, you use the tool you're best at. I think that people are afraid of the fact that Adobe is going to screw it up. And here's why I think it's a valid reason to be upset like really valid reason look at everything else they've done like they've done a great job with adobe xd by the way they're sunsetting adobe xd i know because of figma but you know between you and i and you can keep a secret pascal right on a podcast you can keep a secret sure i don't think that the merger is going to go through and the reason why i said that is because a little birdie told me that the the u.s government is reaching out to designers in in various industries that might use Figma, they do use Figma, whatever. And I must have like just pulled a bunch of data from LinkedIn and like reached out to a bunch of people and spammed them. But they're trying to see like, is it, like they're questioning, like, is there really a competitor that can compete with this purchase? And I don't think any designer is going to say, yeah, there's a one-to-one -one competition with this other tool. There is none. There's Adobe XD, which is the closest to it. And then there's Figma. And even Sketch mm -hmm. is not the same. Like I, I love Sketch. It is not the same. And I used to be very like against Figma because mm -hmm. I, I really love Sketch and how it worked. I still like it better than how Figma works, but not they don't work the same. A lot of things, yes. So I am on the side that it's not going to happen because of of that. And if that happens, where does Figma go? Another big company like Microsoft might buy them or someone else and destroy it. You know, they throw it to PMs like Adobe through XD into India support. And this is not something that I'm making up. This is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing through the woodworks. I know, uh, I know. I'm sure you know exactly who I'm talking about told you. But <laughs> but what's interesting about this is that they're betting so much on Figma's backend mm -hmm. to, to be like the backend for all of the tools, right? 
which I think is a great strategy. Such a good strategy. Like, like finally fix your backend and make it awesome, Adobe. Like, go for it. But they're going to face a lot of, like, issues legally in trying to get that done. And knowing what they've done to all the other tools, you know, they tried their best. I think it's really hard when you're, like, one of the top, well, I think, like, the, like one of the top 10 or 20 largest companies in the world, like, profit-wise. Mm-hmm. Revenue wise, excuse me. I think it's hard to manage software at scale that big. I don't think it works yeah. anymore. I think that you have to limit your, we talked this before, you have to limit your team sizes that work on specific features and things. You can't have 100 people work on the same thing. It just doesn't work because that same person has to know all the other things that it connects to. And that's never possible when you have something that big. Mm-hmm. So when Adobe, makes all these software like like I think it's really valid that people are upset about this Adobe Figma thing because Adobe hasn't been treating a lot of their customers very well in in creating great quality software these days they have so many bugs in their software their error messages are atrocious it doesn't give you any context it just says mm-hmm. it closed right mm-hmm. and that's a that's that's kind of a stupid move like I, I get it like there's a lot of engineers working on it and someone maybe forgot to write the error message because someone has to write mm-hmm. that but you know when somebody's livelihood, it's like literally our third hand. That's what Adobe tools are, or all the software is. It is our third hand to get our job done to make money. If we can't access it or it has a problem, we lose out. And that makes us lose money. And I think that gets to the heart of why people are so frustrated. Number two, mm-hmm. actually, they don't want to relearn what Figma might do to it, right? They might screw up the payment plan. They might make it. I think it- the payment plan is a big issue. Honestly. Yeah, I think that's a really big issue. I think it's a, it's a big issue that might come up. We don't know if it's going to go into CC or if it's going to be separate in CC or it's going to be like gateway drug into CC. But, you but know, even like even in school, what's the software right now being used in school? Is it, I assume it's Figma. I think it's a combination of Adobe, Sketch, and, and Figma. But I think probably less and less of Sketch every day. Yeah, because I mean, it, it's it's going to be hard. I mean, to your point, if... The government steps in. I mean, that's a big issue right there. Right. But you're right. It does show the value design. And, you know, thinking about it from the the whole Twitter business perspective, like business Twitter, business LinkedIn, those are the two top performing like groups of whatever it is on on, on those platforms. You got to give credit to Figma because they showed that the designers is a huge target audience. Like we used to think like artists, they don't make enough money. They're not worth targeting, you know, target enterprise businesses, target, yeah. you know, people who have a lot of money. But there's a huge, 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 huge market there. Canva is taking part of that, right? Like, like all these tools. Yeah. It's actually substantial. And that's a good I reason know. why we're creating this podcast and all this newsletter stuff, because we can help a lot of the people get better at not just using Figma, but using all tools. You know, it's theory that can trans- transcend. Yep. A hundred percent. Mm-hmm. 100%. Okay. So I think we have exhausted Figma talk, unless you have anything else on that. No, I don't. Okay. I'm done with Figma. Yes. <laughs> Never again talk about Figma. I guess what we could do is we can transition into, I have a note on AI-powered tools for for designing, for creating. That's good. That, you know what? That's going to be such an... I'm like... A lot of people are scared about, you know, AI is going to take over the world. I mean, it is. But, yeah, but there's always going to be you. I, well, I don't know. There's like, <laughs> it always depends on if you want to go into a rabbit hole okay. or not. But I, feel- I, I actually would fight back on that. I actually, after considering it again, I do think that a lot of our jobs are going to be replaced by AI, like wholeheartedly. Well, and they're not they going to even need to have a, a person operating anymore. There's a lot of that. A lot is going to be replaced by AI. I think there's, I think also there are jobs that are going to be created that are not even existing now. I think... It's yeah. not like tomorrow everybody's going to lose their job and there's nothing like people will work anymore. I think we're just, it's just going to be an evolution through time of all that. I I think it's happening faster than I thought. Originally at IBM, you know, we have discussions, you know, because we you and I used to build platforms and tools mm-hmm. that actually let people create AI. Yeah. Uh, I, my last project at IBM, I worked on a, a a tool that let people use AI to create AI. Mm-hmm. Right. So. After considering a lot of those conversations then, you know, we, the whole discussion then was like, yeah, you know, designers are always going to have a job or whatever. You know, AI is not that smart, you know, but 
all of a sudden GPT-3 came around and was like, look, if you do something similar to how we're doing it, you actually can achieve really great results. A lot better yeah. than anyone expected. So now mm -hmm. you have all these giant language models that are insane. They're insanely mm -hmm. big, but they're also insanely powerful and can do crazy things, right? Yeah. Write entire blog posts, create, you know, all these image models, right? So they can create images off of a couple of pictures, you train it, and then you give it a little text prompt and then it creates the image. Yeah. Amazing, amazing stuff being produced and it's very accurate. And I was under the impression that this thing is just going to sit in the art world. I think it's going to come a lot faster to a lot of our programs. And I told this sketch when I was, you know, trying to be the the person to help maintain the relationship between Sketch and, and the other company. You know, I think the number one thing they should work on is AI integration, integrating AI into, you know, maybe design system stuff. That's what they hired me at, at the company now to kind of go through and maybe even help bring some AI to the design system stuff, not just like teaching people how to integrate AI into the products, but actually yeah. use AI to design the products. Like, could it build you the, the mock-up in Figma with a click of a button? If you just tech type it, type what you want. You know, I think that there's like a tool called Runway, which I don't know if you've seen this. Have you seen this? No. Okay. So quick rundown on Runway. It's a tool that's, a, it's, a, it's, like a, it's a company that I think they do a bunch of different tools, but they use AI especially in the video editing space to help you do video editing. And now you can actually like type and replace the background, you know, with whatever the image model can come up with. You can, you know, rotoscope people out, but basically you can just kind of co like color them out and then the AI will take care of the rest and just remove them from all the video and then like replace it. So it like looks great. Like it looks like there was no one ever there. I have a bunch of tools in there. That's really cool. I think we should probably start using it in, in the future for some things, but it's a really cool tool. It's a great video editing thing. I haven't quite used it to see how accurate it is, but it looks great. And mm. I see more of that happening and then we'll trickle out into our design tools. Like what if you can talk to Sketch or talk to Figma, right? Like I think there's like a design, like magician.design, which is another tool suite thing coming out from Diagram, yeah. that, that group of, of designers, which I came to with as the idea for, I asked a bunch of design principals, I think before you were a design principal at IBM, I asked them, I'm like, listen, I have this crazy idea. Do you think that we can build a plugin that can allow us to design faster using AI and then come up with the mockups faster or like a bunch of iterations that we can choose from? And a lot of them said, eh, you don't really need AI to do this. You don't really need AI. I'm like, well, maybe you do. And a lot of people pushed back on that. They said, no, Mitchell, you, you should probably just look into something else. AI is not going to be able to do this. Or more, more likely the case was AI's too powerful for this kind of need. Now you're starting to see it in Figma plugins and in Sketch plugins. I, I definitely think I was right there, but I don't think I was able to articulate it and, and kind of map it out properly. But regardless, it's coming. And I think it's coming faster and faster. Yep. And I think that we need to understand it more so we can get ahead of the game and design tools that help designers instead of being the one that ends up using the tool and then missing out on that opportunity. Yeah, I also think it's something we don't learn enough of, like even in school or like, obviously there are classes that, that teach it, but how do you, how does a designer learn AI? Like how well, does how one restructure a curriculum for designers? Man, I feel like I, I think it's like anything in life. I feel the school system adapts too slowly to the real world. And I think design is, is a great example. I think even if I go back to like where I went to university, they're still at the conventional level of, you know, design and print and doing things, which is great because, you know, grids and stuff is foundation to design. But I think there's, there's, there are other universities near to where I went and they cater to more of like that startup mentality, AI, like innovation. And you learn all that through design, which is almost, it's design, but also almost merged with like a small mini MBA. So I think there's like classes and courses or curriculums that are adaptive, but I think AI is still like, I think people can't even grasp what AI does and can do. So to teach it, it's hard. Mm -hmm. I, we need to get designers, but also everyone else, but specifically in this case, designers, AI literate. Yeah. 
because we didn't do even a good job, not us, but the world, we didn't really get the job done when we try to get people to be tech literate, you know, computer literate, literate. We still have to do that. And that's insane. We're already on the next generation of the software that's going to replace the other generations or at least be more mm -hmm. important than the other generations. And we haven't figured out how to get the basics to somebody else. Like we don't even know, we, a lot of people don't even understand how to discern information that they, that they read, that they, that they digest as credible. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean it's true or not, but they don't know what credibility is, mm -hmm. right? Pathos, logos, ethos. Most students, adults, a lot of children don't understand that. And we don't teach that until they get into college. And that's a problem. At least in Florida. I mean, I know Florida education, not the best, but it, it's so sad. We need to get people to be literate in so many things and they don't have enough time in school because they have summer, right? And then you're already overworking them. And I don't even know if people are capable of getting to that point because like, are we really physically uh, uh, able to maintain the information in our brain? Like, is that something that, I guess really not physically, but mentally able to maintain all this information? Because we either have to shift what we teach them or add more to it. And I don't think we can add more to it. We have to replace certain things because there's not enough time in the day. Like what is more important now? Learning about this poet or learning about how do you speak to the AI correctly to get the best image result? I, I don't know. Maybe, I'm, maybe I do know, but I don't, I'm not qualified to answer that question entirely. I can propose an argument for what one or the other, but I think we have to start looking at the school system and saying, look, yeah. there's new things coming that are more important than the traditional job market that we were training people for, you know, get into this corporate job, stay there for 30 years, then retire with no savings. Essentially. 30 years. Ish. Yeah. Right. I don't want to stay in the same place for 30 years, let alone three years. I don't even know if I want to be at the same place for three years. I think um, five is my max. I think five is like a good number though. I think it's like, like a good solid number, but one, you know, I think is, is at least at the very bare minimum you, you should try to strike, strive for. But well, yeah, but you know, you yeah, I mean, like there's always I situations, mean, but yeah. you, you know, like, like then there's questions around those situations when you, I mean, even after one year, but yeah, it, it looks more apparent <laughs> with less than a year. And I get it. Like everyone has a different situation and no one should be judged the same when you're applying. But you know, one thing that we talked about during the course is like what hiring managers are looking for, right. And, and how they're quickly scanning different portfolios and Designers that are hiring, you know, what are they looking for in skiing through different portfolios? They only have like what you said, what would you say? Like, like 20 seconds or something like that? Or what? To scan portfolio? Yeah. Like per each portfolio. Yeah. It's like a max, like they just scan, they glance at it. So it's like you glance at the page, but it's like, it's, I don't remember the exact thing I said, like the number from the quote I got. Right. But right. It's yeah. People glance at things and it's like that, like, I wonder how AI could be used even to look at portfolios. Right. And okay. Analyze. I mean, that could be something interesting. Okay. So that's interesting because Amazon did this for resumes. Do you remember this? Yeah. But that's like people were, were writing white text on like backgrounds just so that the words would come out in their resumes. Like there was a lot of things that. Oh, I didn't know happened. about that part, but I was saying no? that the biasness in it rejected women. Why? I don't remember why specifically, but they trained it on a bunch of data beforehand. Right. Because create AI, you need to train it to to, to know, look for things. And to, uh, I'm telling the audience, you know, <laughs> well, I'm not telling you. You already know. Like we worked at well, IBM. We're, talking. we're AI experts at this point. We're having so, a conversation. <laughs> for the audience listening, when you create AI, specifically, for example, machine learning models, you need to show the right answer and the and tell it the wrong answer for a lot of cases. And then you help, you know, if you do reinforced learning, right, then you have to say, nope, yes, nope, yes or whatever mm -hmm. output that it gives it, and then eventually it learns pretty accurately. And over time, it can also become inaccurate, but that's a different discussion. So in Amazon's case, I believe that they, they tried to, to scale the process of hiring and looking at a lot of resumes and filter out a lot of people who are bad, and then just show the ones that are good. However, the data, the data realized that more men that applied got the job than women when they were using the training data. So it, the AI picked up and said, hey, 
sex is a trait that we're going to use to determine if they are good or bad got uh, as question. candidates. What? I got a question. Okay. Yeah. Were the names on it or like the names so, okay, were taken? Okay. So this, this is the interesting part. So this is what I studied at IBM and try to figure out ways to get around it for cleaning data. Uh, you, so, so AI is, is way smarter than we think, like even oh. smarter than the people who created it think. And it's crazy about it is what they did was they tried to remove the names and all words that relate to gender in their, and I guess in their, in their programs and crap, whatever. And it still detected if they were a woman or a man. And one way it, it, it detected it was that it knew a lot of the women that went to women only schools. So it knew so much more. So these are called proxies, right? So when you have a bit of data and it, it, le it leads you to another bit of data that is determining this bias, it's like a proxy of, of the, the, the determinant, or whatever you call it, the factor. It, it, it couldn't be fixed. They couldn't undo the model because they took, it, it's basically like saying you, you teach somebody from zero years old to 99 years old and you say, Women are bad, right? That person at, at, at year 99 is going to think women are bad, right? Because that's, that's what they were taught all their lives, which is horrible. And full disclosure, you know, bad, very bad. <laughs> For those who don't know our opinions when we stay on that, bad. But they did the same thing for this AI, and they didn't realize it until it was too late. So in order to fix the AI, they had to retrain it, and they didn't have any more data to retrain it. So they had to scrap the whole project completely. Wow. And so it used all these different proxies, no matter how much they tried to hide the person's name, they couldn't get rid of the bias in it. So going back to your original point, training based on portfolio review, like having AI go through portfolios and see who's good and who's bad, maybe there are some patterns that can be translated to an AI that can just quickly go, boom, okay, we have a 50%, 56% chance of this person actually being a good candidate. You know, mm -hmm. maybe they, they, they'd be put into this role. Maybe it could be not just like, you know, yes or no, but like what kind of role and kind of help the person. I don't think it should determine yes or no. Cause like another example of this going bad is like in my hometown, the, the, the county of my hometown, Broward County, they used a, an AI, I guess, I think it was to determine the likelihood of somebody committing a second crime if they get released so that they would punish them harsher in the first crime. And so it would punish black people harsher just because of nothing else. Because the proxy was that they were black, or the, the reasoning because the, the pattern detected was that they were black and there's more black people in jails from the training data. So that ended up making the AI racist hmm. and saying, okay, because you're black, you're going to get a harsher sentence. And that's not right. It should be based on the crime. Mm -hmm. and you, it's hard to predict. Are they going to you know, commit another crime? I know that we want to make sure a society is safe. It's very difficult to predict that. So... Yeah. I think they should have done that project as well, but, or maybe it's still going, I don't even know, honestly, but that was the problem with that, that situation. So it also might become another problem here. And it's, it's very interesting. You have to talk to a really, a really knowledgeable SME, a subject yeah. matter expert or data scientist that could figure out what ways to get around that or how to like fix it so that they can go through portfolios and, and not, but man, I don't, I don't know. Like that would be so cool if it can work, but. That's tough, man. When you're judging people on their livelihood, that's really hard. Jeez, I know. But like, yeah. what, what would you say is like, like from, from our talk, from the portfolio course, what are like a top three things someone should do to, to be a good candidate for a design? Based on so AI? Like, just like, just if you talk to somebody, like, they ask you, hey, like, you know, what do I need to do? Top three things, go. That's hard. <laughs> I was all the hard questions that you I, I went from AI to like top two things of something. I wasn't this, my brain has to, to shift now. Like to me, I like seeing, I like, I usually do the glance for me, like at first, like when I look at a portfolio and is it, this is not like, how can I frame this? Yeah. It doesn't mean that it's how I, I review people, but it kind of, it's the first impression, okay. I think, right? I think the portfolio is like our first impression of things. Am I okay, right so, all the time? So, so, so number not. one, have a good first impression. Uh, to me, yeah. I, I like to me, it's really important. I like to see how can I like how do pe how can people take a very long winded process? Give me that that you know condensed 
things. Be precise and concise with what you want to say. Precise and concise. Okay. So that's number two. Be precise and concise. Yes. So number well, one was have a, a great first impact or first impression. Number two is be precise and concise. Number three, give give me a give me one more. I'm trying not to sway with just like the aesthetics and skills, the craft <laughs> of it. So I'm trying to be not have that. But I think to me too is telling a compelling story of that mm. case. Like yes. walk me through that aspect of it. Like make me want to keep reading. And I mm. feel that's the part that too many times I drop. Like I started and I'm like, mm, I drop because yeah. it's home. It's like, I kind of see this as a story. I was like, oh my God, like this is such a big task they're undertaking. How did they get through it? And then like with imagery or with text and process and, and the big outcome at the end, I want to see what is the impact that he, that person had? Like, it, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't have to be a big project. It could be like, I don't know, click conversion rate or whatever. But I mean, that to me, that is a really important piece when yeah. I look at things. And it's one, unfortunately, that not a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, a lot of people are good at. But I mean, it's it's the one thing that I think a lot of people can get better at, like creating a better yeah. hook creating a better element where condensing it, that it, it's exactly what you need. I don't need to do all the design thinking exercise in your portfolio. I mean, I get it. The majority of people do. Yeah. I think that I'm going to, I'm going to, I was going to add one more thing to, to what you said, but just to recap what you said, the, the three things that you suggest were uh, number one, create a great first impression. Number two, be precise and concise. And then number three, tell your story. Mm -hmm. Which I think are great takeaways for somebody who's looking to create their portfolio or recreate it in a way for, for you know, this new un unfortunate economic situation trying to get a new job. Yeah, I think those are three really great things. But I think we might want to wrap up this episode of the podcast and talk maybe next time on the podcast how to kind of articulate those three things more tangibly. Because I think that there's a really cool way that we can teach in the next, you know, in the next cohort of our course, how do you actually tell a great story? And I didn't realize until just now, like, duh, we should be basing it probably off of the hero's journey. Like your case study is like a story, part of your story. It's like mm -hmm. it's like the Iliad or, or the Odyssey, right? So it's a bunch of stories together. Each one I has some kind of from arc. Zelda, and you're just working through the adventures. Yeah, exactly. And I think that you you put two of the pieces together in like what is a story, mm -hmm. and like we can go into the next episode. But you know, like your impact, your journey, your hook. You know, you know what would you overcome or whatever. Blah, blah, blah. But yeah. I think that this is a great episode to to wrap up now. I think we ended on a really good note. Anything else you want to add before we, we close this one? No. I think this is just going to get better and better at the end of the day. And I think I want to, I want one thing I want to do too, and if whoever is listening, I'd love to be challenged in some stuff, some stuff sometimes, mm. right? And have people reach out and say, you know what? I don't agree and here's why. And I think that's be fantastic. Yeah. Because this needs to be exciting. Yeah, we'll put in like a contact email or something in, in the, the show notes. And then people can reach out to us through that or on Twitter or on LinkedIn. You can spam us. Go for it. Try it. And you won't get through very much if, if you just spam us. But if you actually do want to reach out and leave us some feedback and say, no, Pascal was right. And Mitchell, you're, you're an idiot. You're wrong. Or vice versa. You know, feel free to or, or that we're both wrong altogether. And there's a completely different perspective we didn't think about. Mm -hmm. Or, or we're totally right and that we deserve the praise. Whatever you want to say, let us know. We'd love to know. All right. 100%. Thanks, everyone.